Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the drug-addled classic? Question mark? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Don't you Which is our third Terry Gilliam film. Okay, because there was Brazil. There was Brazil. And there was The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And Jesus dying on a cross but singing about it was not Terry Gilliam? No. So Monty Python's Life of Brian had Terry Gilliam act in it. And also he directed... The weirdest scene in that film, which was the, the alien abduction scene. Okay. But technically, he did not direct that film itself. Okay. But all that to say, we have now seen more Terry Gilliam on cult fiction than any other single director. Interesting. So I guess, I mean, it goes without saying that Terry Gilliam is cult. But, like, I don't even feel like I have to draw a conclusion for that. I think it's kind of... No, I think, like, somebody who doesn't even know what cult is as, like, a concept goes, oh, yeah, no, he's, like, the really weird one. Yeah. Makes all these incredibly eclectic movies from my childhood. Okay. Rate the three for me. Oh, I mean, very... For me, for me at least, very clearly Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is at the top. Okay. I, I am biased because, spoiler alerts, I, I very much enjoy the works of Hunter S. Thompson and I love this movie. Mm-hmm. But I also think it is objectively a better film and a better made film. Yeah. In the middle, I would put Brazil, which I both times I've seen Brazil, I always find myself wanting to like it. So much more than I ever actually did. Mm-hmm. And then Baron Munchausen is one of the worst films we've seen on this project. So Baron Von Poopy Pants. Exactly. Now you do not care for Gilliam, I think it is fair to say at this stage. Um, he's not my favorite way. Sure. But would you rank any differently than what I just said? No, I absolutely okay. wouldn't. I would be with you 100%. Because this is a really well-filmed um the cuz cuz this is really well filmed the acting is good the camera work well trippy is clean and good and the script is interesting enough definitely there's a bit towards the end where the morals slide and become a little bit terrifying very much so but overall i think this is a pretty good movie i would rather watch this any day than watch Baron Von Poopy Pants ever again. That's fair. Do you think it helps at all that this came out 10 years after that film? This came out 10 years after Baron Von Munchausen and 13 years after Brazil. I think it helps that an actual writer wrote the script. (laughs) Fair. A couple of writers, as it turns out. Oh, so it wasn't just Hunter S.? Well, so Hunter S. Thompson wrote the novel on which the book is based off of. 
And then Terry Gilliam was supposed to have written the adaptation for the film with Thompson's help. However, there was the 1998 Writers Guild of America strike in which Terry Gilliam got so like incensed and, and on board that he burned his guild card in the street of like Hollywood Square or something, oh, which then meant that two other completely other dudes had to come in and write the film. Um, pe- a couple of guys by the name of Tony Crisoni and Alex Cox and Todd Davies. <laughs> so, like, a lot of people wrote this movie. <laughs> Cox. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, the the bones, the structure of this film, were already there in the novel, yeah. which... Gilliam just didn't really have with the other films. No, and it's written so well because you can tell that Hunter S. Thompson's writing shines through. Like there's a line where they're talking about they were mad on cocaine and sand or something of that nature. And I'm just like, oh, this hums brilliantly in my brain. It's so pretty of a script. Yeah, absolutely. I just to give my like one sentence synopsis and review of the film here and now. This is a film that I selectively remember my favorite parts of (laughs) because they make my brain hum so pleasantly. Mm -hmm. I think in the middle of this film, there is like just one of the most beautiful affecting short monologues for me personally, that I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I kind of forget the other parts of the movie <laughs> until sure. I'm watching them. Well, so to make this movie a little bit more palatable for me to talk about, because there were definitely parts where I was like, oh, I didn't enjoy this part. I didn't enjoy... There was a lot that... Yeah. Because I didn't watch this at an earlier age, it was just a lot to take in. Sure. No, of course. And... Not to interrupt you, but just to give a quick content warning that for somebody who hasn't seen the film, the back half is it has a lot of violence against women. Yeah, specifically. Yeah, there's a a sexual assault. Um, but in order to make this movie palatable for myself, I was like, okay, I'm gonna di- deep dive on Hunter S. Thompson as a person. And one of the things that was written about him after he died was the true voice of Thompson is revealed to be that of the American moralist, one who often makes himself ugly to expose the ugliness he sees around him. Mm-hmm. And that little bit is every bit true and kind of encapsulates the movie. Yeah. Of just like, this is sheer ugliness and examination of human nature, especially in 1970s America. And... It's ugly and you're not going to like it because it's a little too gritty and a little too real and a little too overstimulating. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I I have something I want to say in response to that. But before that, to just get it out of the way, for those of you who missed the movie, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the trippy, semi-autobiographical, near-incoherent account of journalist Hunter S. Thompson and his friend Oscar Zeta Acosta under the pseudonyms Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo into 70s Las Vegas. An assignment to cover a dirt bike race quickly devolves into a drug-fueled bender to seek out the actual, literal American dream before further devolving into true madness. 
The film was originally a satirical article and then book by the same name before being reimagined by cult fiction's old friend and foe, Terry Gilliam. But the thing I want to say in response to your point... End parentheses. End parentheses, just to fit it in there in the first however many minutes it's been. (laughs) Honestly, the movie that we have seen that resonates most like similarly to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas for me is actually American Psycho. Oh, interesting. I think there are some pretty obvious parallels in that they are both films that were based off books from self-alleged satirists, authors. Mm -hmm. You know, American Psycho was a novel by Brett Easton Ellis. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a novel by Hunter S. Thompson. Um, They both kind of like are trying to explore the ugliness of certain aspects of American culture. Thompson in specific was like raging against the, the Reaganite 70 boomer class that was coming around at that time. Brett Ellis is making fun of yuppie culture that came out a few years later. They're both trying to tell something the movies specifically, the movies are both trying to tell an image, are trying to tell an idea and talk about something with deeper meaning. But I think a lot of that gets lost by how cool the movie posters look on a college room dorm. Mm. The aesthetique of the films <laughs> becomes something that like a bunch of like pretentious college kids and 17-year-old Andy and other pretentious people go, oh, that's quite cool. I like that. Oh, drugs? Oh, wow. So trippy and crazy. And he's acting like a lunatic. Oh, my goodness. Podcasts are not a visual medium, but I need everybody to know that Andy just did jazz hands. I'm very animated this episode. (laughs) And why is that? Because this is a very animated film. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some stuff. My attorney had never been able to accept the notion, often espoused by former drug abusers, that you can get a lot higher without drugs than with them. I do want to talk about how crazy Thompson is Mm -hmm. as a person. Oh, yes, please. Okay, so he ran for sheriff. Yep. Which I'm sure you knew, of Colorado. Um... And one of his things that he did in order to, like, get a jibe in at his opponent was he shaved his head. And then just so he could call his opponent, my long-haired hippie opponent. Yeah. Which is just, like, very special logic. He was going to make a statement such that if he was made sheriff you couldn't have buildings tall enough that you couldn't see the mountains, which I kind of appreciate. I very much appreciate that. Um, He stole Ernest Hemingway's deer antlers from his house when he was investigating reasons behind Hemingway's suicide. He um, got fired from a job for beating up a vending machine. Like he got mad at the candy vending machine and beat it up. And his boss was like, I, Go, please. (laughs) Which is just a wonderful visual. Hunter S. Thompson, 
I, I've talked about him on my other podcast, Love Hate Relationship. I've done an entire segment about how much I love the guy. Not to say that it's not problematic and that's not a love that should be examined, but Hunter S. Thompson was this weird and wonderful, like chain smoking, sardonic mess of a person for all the reasons you've said. His favorite thing to do was to stand on the porch of his ranch and take pot shots at his neighbor from across the valley with his revolver. Like him and his neighbor's favorite thing to do was just shoot at each other from like 1,500 feet away. Like far enough away that like I'm probably not going to hit you, but I'm going to try, damn it. What would they have done if they had hit each other? Probably bought, like, the other a bottle of Kentucky bourbon as, like, an apology. He was this absolutely, like, unique human being. Anybody who's uh, read Transmetropolitan, which is one of my favorite comic books, um, I talk about it every chance I get in real life. Um, he is the basis for the main character, Spider-Jerusalem, who is this futuristic, mean, cruel, but like morally righteous in a very specific way, sex past freakazoid Hunter S. Thompson character. And the thing that attracted me as a younger person was that like, before I really examined libertarianism, he seemed like the perfect embodiment of libertarianism. He he was for all peoples to do all things that they wanted within reason, as long as it wasn't be a fucking Republican. What I appreciate more now as an older person who has examined my thoughts on libertarianism is that Hunter Thompson was a man who came up in the free love hippie culture of the 60s decided that, that was a good thing and then spent the rest of his life railing against the systems and the people that he saw as cruel and unjust and unfair and wicked who robbed all of us of the continuation of that 60s mind expanding experience and ran <laughs> Not to say that there wasn't problematic aspects about the guy, which I did not know until you found out. Well, so I was like, okay, he's cool. Okay, he's cool. I'm scrolling his Wikipedia page. And I was like, da-da-da. Oh, look, Andy was right. He didn't do a bad against women. And then Thompson faced a sexual assault charge in March 1990 when former pornographic film director Gail Palmer claimed that after she denied his sexual adventures while at his home, Thompson threw a drink at her face and then twisted her left breast. Which fucking sucks. Which fucking sucks. That fucking sucks. <laughs> I will make no bones about it. I will make no defense of the man. That's a monstrous action against another human being, especially, uh, you know, an act of violence against women, which does not go well with some of the things that happen later in this film. Again, I'm I'm waving my hands in circles, people. <laughs> I'm Andy. I'm trying to apologize for putting my best friend through a rape scene without giving her a warning. Yeah. <laughs> it's Here's the thing. It's also there's a 12-year-old girl that it's heavily implied one of the characters has fucked. Yes. And, again, I don't want to 
come across as defending that in any way mm-hmm. other than to say it is a very important clarification that the only insinuation of that uh, of anything towards the 12 year old girl is from the character of Raldu Country Thompson yelling at his friend in a drug drug addled haze to try and get him to disentangle himself from said young girl. And this is one of the few like quibbles I do have with the movie against the book. The it is the book is very much supposed to be a satire. This this goes back to the thing with you know American Psycho. Brady Snell didn't think he was writing something horribly monstrous. He thought he was writing a satire. Um, Hunter S. Thompson was trying to poke fun at certain things. And I feel like the way he did it reflected better in the book. And then Gilliam was like, well, we don't have time for all of that. So we're going to sweep a lot of the like deeper meaning under the rug. Well, and I think that's the the difficulty sometimes from book to movie is that you you can have time for the inner monologue if you're really careful and you're really mindful about it and you set aside time for it, which I think this movie did for the things it wanted to, Mm -hmm. which I think is my problem with it is that it could have taken the time to, but it took the time to do that about the half assault shaker of cocaine we're bringing with us on the trip. Absolutely. And you know what? I will say this. I'm comparing it to American Psycho a lot. Something I was going to say was like the difference between Hunter S. Thompson and Brett Easton Ellis is Hunter S. Thompson knew he was a piece of shit and embraced it. But here's something I want to say in positive about American Psycho. When it was time to make a movie about that, they got Mary Heron. They got a woman to help tell this story and give a female perspective on the thing Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was absolutely like a testosterone-fueled jerk-off party between Hunter S. Thompson and himself, Terry Gilliam, Johnny Depp, Benicio Del Toro, and the cavalcade of other writers. Well, if you read about uh, Thompson's funeral, it's like Johnny Depp was there, a senator was there, Jack Nicholson was there. I'm like, oh, ew. Speaking of people who, like, are gross. <laughs> that sounds like a room I walk in and it'd be sticky. The most I will say for Fear and Loathing in terms of a feminist lens is that the rights to this film were actually owned by an ex-girlfriend of Hunter Thompson's whom he, like, just sold her the rights to nothing. He basically said, you own the rights to any film about this now. Her name is Layla Nabulsi. And Layla Nabulsi tried for 10 years to get this film made in Hollywood and like stuck with this project and was committed to seeing it be made when I don't know what stake she would have had in the film besides like any financial benefit of it. So I think that does say something. I'm not sure what, but something that a woman like stood by this project and tried to get it off the ground for an entire decade. For sure. I definitely can see that. Yeah. I think there are really beautiful parts of this movie. There's a epic close-up on Johnny Depp's eye Mm -hmm. where we see, like, the entirety of his world. We have Tobey Maguire 
as a baby who's a hitchhiker, but also he has the hardest working bald cap in all of Hollywood. <laughs> Indeed. Especially because he's got long blonde hair hanging from it. It's so gross. It's very, very, very weird. It looks like Riff Raff if Riff Raff like, had a bender. It looks like Riff Raff if Riff Raff were some redneck kid hitchhiking across America. It looks like Riff Raff if Riff Raff hasn't showered for a couple days and forgot what deodorant was. This is the new game. Yay! What does it look like Riff Raff doing? <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Well, I guess you're about ready then, aren't you? Okay, how much do we believe the phone call at the Hollywood Hotel? Because all of a sudden they're eating at this really fancy hotel and they're being assholes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, so the film opens with them driving through the desert and then we get a talkback monologue of how they got to the point of driving through the desert. I believe most of the phone call. Okay. I think the whole point is that Thompson is an incredibly unreliable narrator from the word go and becomes increasingly and increasingly and increasingly less reliable the more drugs he takes. Mm. But the why of it all, I, I believe. I, okay. I believe that they were sitting in a cafe, a bar in L.A., and got a call because ostensibly... This is journalist Hunter S. Thompson in real life getting a call to do a thing and then being told to do the thing and basically stealing a car and filling it with drugs and bringing his friend out to Vegas with him. Which apparently was easy to do in the 60s. Was it just like ridiculously easy to steal cars? I mean, yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he drives it off the lot. He signs for it, drives it off the lot. And knows that he's going to return it in, like, horrible condition at the end of the week. But who cares? It's his return policy. But, yeah, no, it's it, he's an, incre an incredibly unreliable narrator. But I think the, like, bare bones of what happens. Mm -hmm. Hunter S. Thompson goes to cover a dirt bike race. The dirt bike race is too dusty and sandy for him to actually see anything. Mm -hmm. So he says, fuck this. I'm going to go back to my hotel room and continue doing drugs. That much, I'm willing to say, yeah, that probably happened exactly like it happened. It's the further and further we get along. It's the experience of the two of them on an ether bender. And getting kicked out of a Debbie Reynolds concert. It's them utterly destroying these hotel suites beyond anything you've ever seen in a film. Like at one point, it becomes like a swamp. It's a lake and he's wading through it. Exactly. It's, it's stuff like that. And I, I think the point, I think the point is it becomes stuff like... When he tries to leave Vegas the first time and he comes across a cop who he has a very awkward interaction with and it ends with the cop asking him, would you give me a little kiss? I think it's when he returns back and finds his attorney friend who was in L.A., like got on a plane and went home and then all of a sudden he beat Thompson back to the hotel room with a 12-year-old girl in tow. 
it's that stuff that I think is supposed to become increasingly more like what what actually happened here? What actually is going on? It's important to note, I, I use their real names, Hunter mm-hmm. S. Thompson and Oscar Zeta Acosta. Those are real people who really went to Las Vegas and did a thing. In the book, it's Raul Duke and Dr. Gonzo. He uses pseudonyms in one part, I think, because he thought those names sounded cool. But it's literally stated from Thompson that part of the reason he called his friend Dr. Gonzo was so that there would be less of a likelihood of any actual crime or ill-doing being used as, like, libel against the guy. So, like, something happened. And Dr. Gonzo is a monster. Dr. Gonzo is a monstrous character. He's sitting at one point with a dagger in the bathtub telling Thompson, you have to kill me now. Throw the radio in the bathtub. Yeah. Which is played for comedy, but is also terrifying. Yeah, deeply horrifying. Because it's like this incredibly sharp hunting knife that can slice a cantaloupe in half like nothing. And yeah, he's waving it around madly. He's in a He is in a non-lucid state of mind, which becomes like... Frightening, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a scary character in the ways that he is around women. There is the 12 year old girl, there is the maid that they like grab and make it put into a really unsafe situation and then gaslight and lie to just to get her to leave them alone. And this is the part that like did stick in my mind most clearly from when I've seen this before. There's a sequence very much towards the end where the two of them are in a diner. Thompson is very clearly still tripping. Gonzo, maybe not. It seems like he's stone cold sober and he's mean and mad about it. And winds up like verbally assaulting this terrified Las Vegas waitress because they're so far off the strip that it's the part of town that bad things happen. And he is the bad thing that is going to happen to this woman's night. And the one thing that doesn't, not the one thing, but the thing that like about that then sticks so poorly in my craw is the film kind of ends with Thompson hurriedly driving Gonzo to the airport. Mm-hmm. It's like important that he gets him on his plane on time. And as he's walking away, Johnny Depp is giving this monologue about how he's like one of God's own perfect mutants, too rare to live, too too weird to die. And it comes across as vaguely epic, vaguely mm. deifying, vaguely like the actual words he uses are this 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 person they're they're not praising but the tone feels praising it's like the uh king well now king um henry henry george charles Char- that's the bitch <laughs> the king charles prince charles episode of the crown where they end the episode being like and then this amazing center he built went on to fund and i'm like Okay, we're going to talk about how his center went on to fund careers and livelihood. Did we not just see how he treated his wife? Like, did we not just watch him backhand her? The 
the beat that the film ends on is Johnny Depp like vaguely praising this person that we've done, we've seen do horrible and abhorrent things. And I feel like that comes across a lot more damning in the text mm. than in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and the other big change from the book is in the book that diner sequence still happens, only instead of it being a terrible assault on a person and it being all about how scary Dr. Gonzo is, in the book, the diner sequence is like where they're at the end of their rope, they're coming to the end of their trip, and somebody, like, they're, they're talking to somebody about how they're trying to find the American dream, and somebody's like, oh, I can show you where the actual American dream is. Go to this place. And they go to the place, and it's a burned-down nightclub full of a bunch of, like, drug-addled squatters, which fits in the message, the overarching thematic message of the art mm-hmm. much better. Yeah. Because the whole thing Thompson was actually trying to do is say the American dream literally died in 1969. We killed it when we killed the hippie movement. We're doing something else now and we're never getting the deified American dream back. Hmm. Like that's the whole point he was trying to say with the book. And they do this really weird thing in the movie where they like, they say, they straight up say it halfway through the movie. It's the part I was talking about that is like one of my favorite little monologues. It talks about the high water line and how the wave came crashing back and the high water, he's, he's using a metaphor for, you know, 60s drug culture. They do that halfway through the film and then just continue going. And that's where I really think Gillian loses the point. Got it. So if it had had that scene at the very end, how would that change your opinion of the movie? I think it would work more cohesively. Yeah. Because like so many other Gilliam films, it really kind of seems to get bogged down under its own madness by the back half. Well, and his pacing is shit. Sure. So if he had paced it well and built... But he's not good at building tension. He's just, rah, we're all going to be crazy. He's not good at building tension. He's good at building worlds. Oh, yeah. And that is why I think he's so visually distinctive. But his movies all seem to kind of just crash towards the end. Yeah. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right. That we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. Speaking of, I haven't even said it, talking about things to do at the beginning, returning to cold fiction, of course, three-time person now, Terry Gilliam from his assorted films, but also we had Johnny Depp, who we saw in Crybaby. Mm-hmm. We had Ellen Barkin, who I want to call out specifically because she is the waitress who has that scene at the end. And do you know where we saw Ellen Barkin from? She was Tom Waits's girlfriend in Down by Law. <gasps> No. Oh, I love that. So a weird little, like, similarity there. Um, And then in a blink and you'll miss him cameo, Henry Dean Stanton, the dad from Pretty in Pink, (laughs) plays the judge in Hunter S. Thompson's, like, nightmare flashback about what's going to happen when Christina Ritchie's 12-year-old girl accuses them both of pedophilia. 
Yeah. Has Christina Ritchie been in a cult movie that we've I watched mean, yet? Not that we've watched yet. Okay. Definitely cult movies. Definitely going to see her again. But Oh, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I... Watching this movie with you here, I think it was the first time I'd watched it in like three years or so, three or four years. And it just did really strike me the parts that I like and remember versus the parts that I don't like as much. And therefore my brain was like, well, we don't need that. (laughs) We could just toss that and throw that away. Yeah, you know. It's okay. Your brain does that with movies. My brain does that with like real life. So you're (laughs) fine. Fair enough. To be fair, my brain also does that with real life. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. I feel like I've been crapping on Terry Gilliam a lot here, and I want to, like, kind of balance that scale by saying there is one scene in this film where I think he is at his absolute best. That's the scene where um, Thompson is, like, tripping for the first time, and they're trying to check into the first hotel, and they're hanging out in the hotel bar. (laughs) And everyone's lizards. And everyone, like, there's a sequence where he just turns around, and everyone is these lizard monsters devouring each other and drinking the blood and (laughs) having a cannibalistic Bacchanalian, like, orgy of violence. (laughs) This, this is why I don't do drugs. Because if I just looked around and saw a lizard zoo, I I would die. Sure. I would just pass out. Absolutely. Uh, fun fact, people who have done drugs say that scene is incredibly accurate. Not for the lizard monsters, but there's a sequence where Hunter S. Thompson looks at the carpet and it's just like shimmering and shifting in, in shape. And people have said that like that is like, yeah, that's what that looks like interesting so beating out or not beating out but joining enter the void with notable accurate representation of drug use (laughs) (laughs) well i mean based on who built this movie i'm not at all surprised yeah absolutely what i was surprised because i've never seen this before i didn't realize how much the weekend video music video came from this yeah like frame by frame the um, the one where him and I have no idea who he's with, but him and somebody else, they recreate the sequence where they're tripping on ether. The one where he's like, ooh. I'm blinded by the light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it would be helpful if I sang the song. Perfect. No, I get it. No, you're you're absolutely right. And that's that is to speak to. And this is maybe us us getting into the is it cult of it all. Hunter S. Thompson is cult. Hunter S. Thompson is incredibly cult, and this is his most famous work, so by proxy it is cult. But like the legacy of this film, the aesthetic legacy of this film, because you're right, a lot of the stuff from The Weeknd's most recent album is just like he watched this movie and loved it and wanted to like pretend to do it for a couple of music videos. And like Panic at the Disco has an album called Too Rare to Live, Too Weird to Die. Avenged Sevenfold has a song called Bat Country, which is specifically from the line, we can't stop here. This is Bat Country. And in the music video, they dress up like Hunter S. Thompson and drive across the desert and have strippers because it's Avenged Sevenfold. (laughs) The, The visual aesthetic legacy of this film is incredibly popular. I talked about how 
you know, they tried to make this film for 10 years. They got really big names. For a while, this was going to be Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando as Thompson and Dr. Gonzo. Oh, interesting. And then it was going to be Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, which is a weirder film for okay. sure. Okay. Um, I'm blanking because I didn't write it now. I, I'm blanking because I didn't write it down, but there were some like big name directors. Oh, it, all, Oliver Stone, who we would remember from Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Big name directors tried to get this film made. Big name stars were going to star in this film. And then finally the stars aligned in the late 90s for it to be Terry Gilliam and Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro. And what a world we've got. And what a world we've got. And even though I didn't enjoy this movie, I can still give it an Oscar because every movie we talk about deserves an Oscar. Here, here. So I would like to give Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas the Oscar for hardest working bald caps. <laughs> because not only do we have Tobey Maguire in the weird riff-raff situation. Indeed. Johnny Depp's bald cap makes him look like he has an egghead. So here's, here's what I love about this. Okay. You say that. Uh-huh. How would re- how would you react if I were to tell you Johnny Depp's not wearing a bald cap? Oh my god, did he shave his head? He did not shave his head. Actual literal Hunter S. Thompson <gasps> shaved his head. Do you think he walked around later being like, Hunter Thompson shaved my head, I'm never going to wash my head again. He might have, because <laughs> Johnny Depp is the biggest Hunter S. Thompson fangirl alive. <laughs> the two of them spent like a month hanging out so that johnny depp could like get the mannerisms and they became real actual like best friends oh i like that kind of (laughs) i like that i don't like that i like that two objectively bad famous people becoming friends with each other listen maybe it was their friendship that kept them from being worse people maybe Oh, maybe they shared a Carl's Jr. burger with love. They shared a Carl's Jr. burger, and then each gripping in the same hand, they lifted up a Magnum revolver, and they shot a Burger King bag. (laughs) Oh, so we're, we're transforming the bit away from Carl's Jr.'s is awesome to Carl's Jr. is awesome, and Burger King is terrible. I mean, that's my stance. <laughs> Were I running for sheriff of a Colorado county? County. County. Were I running for sheriff of a Colorado county? That is the ticket I would run on is the Burger King sucks ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Carl's Jr., the only burger that's allowed to be here. Perfect. I would I would vote for me. <laughs> I would also vote for my Oscar, of course. Yeah. Um, which I would like to give Fear and Loathing the Oscar for Best Poser. Because, okay. because, and this one is a little bit of a stretch. I, I do enjoy this film, but I, I think this fits. In the film, late in the film, there is a sequence where Johnny Depp takes a drug called Adrenochrome. It's the thing that makes him just like start gibbering like a lizard. And losing 12-hour chunks of his life at a time. Adrenochrome does not exist. Adrenochrome is a made-up, fictionalized drug by Thompson to, like, really try and lean into the satire of drug culture by, like, I found the hardest shit you could possibly find. 
when it's a fake thing. When the film premiered, Terry Gilliam remembers at the rap party some random, like, 20-year-old coming up to him and talking about how much he loved the film and especially how great it was and how accurate it was in its drug representation. And he quotedly said, especially the adrenochrome. That is exactly what that shit did to me, man. Like, you, you nailed it absolutely perfectly. This drug that does not exist. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah, that that oh wow. That is the best poser move I've ever heard walking up to the director of the film and trying to fake it into saying that you know the drug experience <sighs> of a thing that isn't real. Oh. It's... That's so good. <laughs> it's so cringe it hurts <laughs> and that's why it gets the oscar mm. but you know what's not cringe what's not cringe at all is our beloved kevin bacon which we can do in one this time that's right and uh experienced listeners can probably guess how this film can be solved in one if you're playing six degrees of kevin bacon So in the spirit of children's animation, can you guess who could do it in one, everybody? Who can do it in one? Is it Johnny Depp? Yay! Good job, boys and girls, though I'm terrified that you have seen the film Black Mass. <laughs> Where he starred with Kevin Bacon. Absolutely. And that one is going to be an easy, like, get now. Coincidentally, I, I never caught this any other time we've used this film, but I, I came across an article earlier today. Kevin Bacon, when Black Mass came out, did, like, a little bit of a press circuit where he kept saying, this is really going to, like, ruin Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon because there's so many actors in this film now. <laughs> it's, like, so much easier to do this game now. <laughs> Which is perfect. I love that he himself is aware oh, yeah. that there is a game and just is like, oh, this is going to make my game so easy. He is aware. He enjoys it. Hopefully he's aware of this podcast and that's why he has come to Asheville, hoping that we will find him in the street and bring him on. You think he was sad? He was like, oh man, I didn't run into Andy and Stephanie. I think he was glad he didn't have to talk about Anchorman. You know what? That's fair. Well, maybe he'll want to talk about our next movie. Maybe he will, and we're going to have to find out what that is. The same way we find out what every movie is. Here on Cult Fiction, we ask the Hollywood crypt to give it give us its pick for the next film through the application of a random number generator and our curated list of 273 films. Good Christ. Which I may or may not be continually adding more to. Oh my God, why? <laughs> because I realized... We didn't have a film that, like, came out after 2018 when, uh, like, I started thinking about this. Fair. So there's, like, a handful of genuine cult films in the five years since that. Fair. That I was like, these need to go on. Anyway, let's find out if it's going to be one of those films or if it's going to be one of our tried and true classics. I can tell you it's going to be an older film based off of how I randomized the list because it is number 253. <laughs> And number 253 
continuing the trend of blasts from the past on the next episode of cult fiction we are going to be watching flesh for frankenstein which is the movie they made no. before blood for dracula no <laughs> The return of Andy Warhol's weird friend who's a filmmaker, Paul Morrissey. Okay. The return of one of the worst films we've ever seen and the need for virgin blood. I wonder if you'll get up in the middle of this movie and make a sandwich. You know, I hope so. I hope so too. It, this was the movie they made first, so I'll be, I'm very interested if this is better. I, I kind of hope it is. It kind of has to be, right? Yeah, like I want it to be just okay. Mm-hmm. It probably won't be. It probably won't be. It probably can be found on the internet. I'm going to be really sad because I'm looking it up and I'm not coming up with a good answer. It is not on Prime anymore. Uh oh. Oh no. Wow. Oh god, it's not available for streaming. I was so excited. Oh no. I'm not even gonna cut this, viewers. Like this you you will take this high and low with me. <laughs> okay, well, okay, okay, well. Okay, Stephanie, Stephanie, okay. Uh, it appears Flush for Frankenstein is not available for streaming at this time. You get a, you, you dodge one bullet, but will you dodge another <laughs> as we go again? Back through the process. Spin the wheel round and round. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. Uh, debatably dodging a bullet here. It's not Anaconda. Uh, it is The Fountain. Oh, okay. Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, well, look at this then. <laughs> what highs and lows. What an adventure. At the end of this. Who would have seen this coming? Not me. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is exciting. Okay, let's make sure The Fountain is available for streaming. I, I'm sure it is. Should be on Amazon Prime. At time of recording, The Fountain is available on YouTube, Vudu, and Amazon Prime for $3 each. Fantastic. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we travel so far through time that we come out the other end of it and just become this like immortal timeless being beings he turns into a tree he turns into a tree yeah join us next time as we turn into trees <laughs> <laughs> for stephanie johnson i've been andy bowell <laughs>